a human being is someone who doesn't fully identify with their institution. And this is this is a problem that I see in other areas today. Like it seems to me like there's an especially on the left, there's this tendency to fully identify with the collective or the institution to the point where individuality is basically seen as a bourgeois conceit. But what, what do you lose? Seriously, like yeah. where, where are we going if we go all the way down that road? Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And as we've been exploring on this show a lot lately, our place in time is a moment at which the reproduction is taking on a new life and intensity. We're recording more and more and more of our lives and learning to replay these moments and to breathe new life into them. We are at the dawning of the age of simulacra. And how we move forward into this age has everything to do with how we decide to treat simulacra, how we decide to understand them. The doppelganger is no longer a creature of folklore, but the reality of our daily lives in a world with artificially intelligent assistance grown from the records of our online activity, cloned organs, and of course, the sequel. What is our obsession with the sequel, but a symptom of our obsession with the simulacrum and this making sense of what it means to repeat with variations? This week's episode features filmmaker, author, and co-host of the new and wonderful Weird Studies podcast, J.F. Martell. A repeat guest on the show, J.F. was on last year talking about his book Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice and his essay series Reality is Analog, exploring the philosophy of Netflix's Stranger Things. So I figured I better have him on the show since I've been doing an insane run of Blade Runner 2049 episodes and Stranger Things 2 came out and his new podcast, again, is wonderful. So this is an exploration of the weird, the uncanny. Yes, this is a spoiler alert for anyone who has not seen Blade Runner 2049 or Stranger Things 2, but this is not really a show about those programs but a show about the deep and horrifying questions of the uncanny valley, the scholarship on cybernetics, body horror, and ultimately whether or not the sort of gruesome half-life of our institutions, our corporations, our religions, our states, draws upon its power by dehumanizing the people who participate in it. By giving life to machines, do we become machines? Whether you love or hate the zeitgeist's recent fetish for fembots and cuddly demogorgons, this episode explores the continuity between our demon-haunted modern minds and their precedence in Pinocchio and the Velveteen Rabbit, union individuation, and what it means to make a soul. But first, I want to thank this week's new Patreon supporters, Brian DeGraw and Lauren Fash, both signed up at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and have access to an extensive back catalog of exclusive stuff, including podcast episodes and music and other goodies. You're helping me pay my rent and keep this podcast a priority in my extremely busy life. Thank you so, so much. And it's a delight to be responsible to you, my paid subscribing audience. Oh my God. I stay awake at night devising intricate, clever schemes to show you how much I care. Same goes for everybody who has been rating and reviewing this show on iTunes or Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to this show. Your ratings and your reviews are hugely helpful for getting these conversations into the ears and minds of everyone who will appreciate and benefit from them. So, thanks everybody! Episode 71! Oh my god. Here we go. J.F. Martell, it is a pleasure to have you back on Future Fossils. 
Thanks. It's a a pleasure to be back for sure. So uh, I don't know exactly how out of date this is going to seem by the time people finally get to it, but I am firmly convinced that it doesn't matter and that the issues surrounding Blade Runner 2049 and Stranger Things 2 are emblematic of the stuff that we're we're living through right now as a species and are thus a fine point of conversation because the further we get from you know the kind of like release schedule mania of stuff and we move into that sort of the evergreen zone i feel like these these two projects represent kind of evergreen issues for us at this moment in human evolution so you just saw both of them finally. What are you? Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, I watched Stranger Things about a month ago, and I kind of binged it over a week. And I finally saw Blade Runner last night because I knew this was coming up, and so I was oh shit, I have to see it tonight because I can't. And so it, the only place I could see it was at a discount, one of those discount cinemas. Oh yeah, no! Yeah, with a tiny screen. But I, there were like three people in there, and it was surprisingly decent, the sound quality and stuff. So I got to enjoy it last night on a, what turned out to be almost like a large screen TV more than a movie theater. But I liked it. And uh, yeah, and Stranger Things, of course, I, I kind of had a dog in that race because I'd, I'd written about the first season. So I was curious to see what was going to happen with the second and how that would work with what I extrapolated from the first and uh, I was pretty presently surpri- surprised with it, uh, not just because of my paper, but on its own, as a, I thought it was a very good follow-up to the first season. What were your impressions, just on a general aesthetic level? It felt to me like they're really making it clear that they're devoted to a formal decision to reproduce the 80s down to like very specific aesthetic decisions and stylistic yeah. and plotting decisions like basically it felt like stranger things 2 was trying to sequelize in the way that aliens sequelized alien you know where mm-hmm. you know you move from one monster to many right suddenly paul riser shows up like that's a I felt like that was that was almost a nod to the the aliens people, you know, saying like here's your sort of semi-lovable slime ball, you know, government prick, but of course he's much more likable in stranger things. And and yet I also felt like it fell flat in some ways that it struggled in some ways the first season didn't, especially with, you know, trying to like to tug on us emotionally. I felt like the first season did a a far better job of that. And like, it was one of these things where it's like, you know that Bob Newby is, he's got a target painted on him from the moment that he enters the show. And it's like, it's a crime the way that I felt that they, they handled the end of his story sort of, you know, but I mean, it just, I appreciate that they, they wrap things up. They bring it to resolution. Unlike most people, I was really pleased uh, and tickled with the whole like episode seven Chicago subplot side plot. Right. Uh, I felt like that was kind of necessary to round the bases. Like if there, it almost felt like season two was them like mopping up on a scavenger hunt of eighties tropes, you know? Right. And, and they, they needed episode that, seven for that. So the urban punk uh, episode to like, yeah, I know I, I However, I mean, I agree with what you're you're saying, but I do feel like uh, this is a case, Stranger Things is a case where style and substance have coalesced so much that it's really hard to separate them. And I think it works in its favor, ultimately. I agree. I wasn't as gripped by the second season. Um, And I wasn't surprised about that. The first season just, it kind of, it was one of those magical little moments, I thought, that you couldn't really follow that up, really. But I I thought they did a fairly good job at not breaking the first season, which is what I like. They didn't didn't screw up what they'd done right. They expanded without any qualitative changes in what the world was, and they, um, they kind of went deeper vertically into some themes, but they left pretty much left the whole thing intact, which is nice. Yeah, there were a couple of moments that kind of blew me away. Um, well, I don't want to sound like I'm, like, blowing my own horn or anything, but, but there was one moment where, do you remember in the essay when I, I said that um, 
I basically talk about the AV club in their school and they have a shortwave radio, whereas in 1983, shortwave radio was kind of old news. So it's kind of weird they don't have a Commodore 64 there or something. And that's what's turning them on. But no, they're obsessed with the shortwave radio. So that worked into the argument that the, the show was about the twilight of the analog and the dawn of the digital. And uh, it was set in 83, which is just it was set just a few months before Apple released the first Macintosh. The first Macintosh ad made reference to 1984, the novel, and I kind of just threw all that in there and yeah. showed how this is the, the, you know, and when you get back to the AV club in season two, the shortwave radio is gone and there's a Macintosh computer there <laughs> and a Macintosh poster on the wall. So that was either, either they just did that and uh, my essay was really right on or somebody, <laughs> somebody kind of passed the essay over to them and they're like, okay, we're going to not at JF's piece. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, well, I mean, so one way or the other, I'll take it as a good thing. You know, this is um, actually a lot of the topics that you brought up in Reality is Analog are so focal in both season two. You know, they, they, they do carry that on. And then also in the way that they handle, like you said, the, the deepening vertical exploration yeah. Uh, which, right. Both uh, metaphorical and literal, right? Because, of course, in right. Stranger Things, they actually go down the hole and then right. in, uh, you know, into it. And then, of course, you've got the um, the way that they've they've expanded the world in, in Blade Runner 2049, which, you know, has a lot to do with an increasing emphasis on the invisible surround of that solar system, you know, the off-world economy and off-world colonies and yeah. stuff. and. Yeah, so that I'm, I'm curious. I remember last time we spoke, you said you were going to follow up with a reality is digital piece. Does that still right. feel feel charged up after I, this? I want to write a di- reality is digital piece. I think I need to write it, but I was waiting for Stranger Things too, hoping that conveniently it would serve as, as the kind of platform for it. But it didn't. Doesn't work that way. It's still they hint at a kind of it's too literal. It's too literally about that. And I think that um, a better avenue for exploring the idea that reality is digital is more like Blade Runner. And, you know, I'm working right now with Phil Ford. He's a musicologist from uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. And he and I are working on a podcast, actually. We're just building it up over, like, recording stuff. I I mentioned it to you, and we said that we'd have you on. Yeah, that's coming. And uh, one of the themes we're exploring is the theme of the soul, right? So the idea of the soul. So that's been on my mind recently. And as I watched uh, these two shows, I mean, Stranger Things 2 and also Blade Runner, I noticed a lot of interesting avenues of exploration with regards to the idea of the soul and where, where it stands today uh, at this juncture, you know, in the, in the human tragedy. Please say more about that, because, I mean, definitely I feel like, you know, when I log on to Facebook, I'm just amazed at how closed-minded and sort of like myopic or resistant people are like willfully ignorant and i mean i i have to count myself in this to whatever extent you know like the yeah we're all in the same boat as far as future shock and the desire to keep things simple is concerned but like especially because you know blade runner 2049 had those three shorts that came out with it and the one of them that was it, it kind of reminded me of the Animatrix, you know, like how they, they right. put out, you know, these sort of complimentary shorts. And so it evokes for me a similar, like they really obviously wanted to say more than they could say in the film about the humanity of the soulless. And, you know, you get into other stuff like, you know, like the xenophobia of District 9 or to some degree, even the way that you know, the, the commodification of biology in the Jurassic Park films, you know, right. and I worry, <laughs> but like, I am ashamed to admit that it keeps me up at night thinking about how many of my friends are either totally uncritical in their embrace of, oh, I'm ready to upload as soon as possible. Like just consciousness is just information. Let's throw yeah. it on. Or they're like, that thing has no soul. It never will have a soul. Right. You know, it can. There's that line, the wall that they talk about in 2049 between the maid and the born. 
right. you know, does not come down as a way of socially and psychologically buttressing ourselves against all of this change. And yet both of these in, in some way kind of point to the foolishness of that, like in, in Stranger Things 2, how they make a kind of a, a lovable, charismatic character out of a demigorgon. You know, D'Artagnan, they, they show right. that this is not just this like soulless demonic monster, but that it no, it's a creature it's an in, in an yeah. ecosystem. And it, yeah. And so I don't know. Thoughts? Right. Yeah. It's a, you're making a great point. And it's, it's, a, it's a very polarizing issue. Like everything else these days, it seems, um, the, the, let's say the futurist, transhumanist idea that we can become or create a better species. It's a Nietzschean idea, really. You know, um, the idea that we can transform ourselves and then uh, it's like either that's a good thing or a bad thing. It seems to me like if anything like that were to happen, it would solve some problems, create new ones. But I did think that in Blade Runner, they do try to posit the idea that, or at least they, they seem to be pushing for a conception, and the, the idea that birth equals soul, that without being born, you have no soul. That seems to be, because we don't want to spoil it, but um, I assume this, this is a spoiler alert right. episode. Let's go for it. Okay. Right. We're way, we're way, <laughs> we're already, way late. Bob Newby's dead, yeah. folks. <laughs> He's right, dead. Right. So um, the, uh, the, the character, the, the kind of messiah figure who was born miraculously from a replicant in the film is this woman, Anna Stelina, I think her name is. And they, she, she, she's basically a memory creator. She's, she's like the ultimate artist. She creates movies that exist, you know, in your basically soul-making movies that she then gives to the replicants to give them a humanity. And the thing about her is that she is both a replicant, so she has the mental capacity to process information at incredible speeds. She can, you know, make a whole forest out of nothing. She can do what only replicants can do, but at the same time, she's also, she was born and has a past and has a history, which gives her a soul. There's this weird connotation, and there's a part where he kind of spells it out, where uh, Ryan Gosling says, um, I always thought that if you had a, if you were born, you had a soul. I never killed something with a soul. So I found that really interesting uh, as an exploration of what the word soul means, because it's a really, really vague word. But I think it touches on one of the the problems with uh, the whole transhumanist uh, singularity thing is that it doesn't seem to be an either or issue. It's not like either like, you know, we're just information. And, you know, if we just conceive of the world that way, it all makes sense and we'll all upload and all, all, everything will be well. Or um, this is a horrible, demonic, aromatic transformation of the human species into a kind of like uh, in pseudo angelic demons of some sort and we have to fight it so obviously yeah it's it's more ambiguous and gray than that but the two extremes have interesting points and those are fun to explore i know that you've been surfing the line for a while and you're you're i can never really tell where you're standing at one moment or the next but i mean i like that i think that's where you want to be with these issues right well i guess the thing that's been in the forefront for me lately has been that blade runner 2049 felt to me like the velveteen rabbit when we're talking about soul, you know, it's like it's clearly a kind of a Pinocchio story where the soul is something that is acquired through hardship. And I don't know, maybe I'm just projecting because this year has been ape shit for me, but I really do feel like I have more of a soul than I did a year ago. And yeah. I can see I just had Tim Freak on the show. He's a, a British philosopher, really interesting cat. One of the things that he he espouses in his work is that he believes, and I, I wanted to put the two of you into a jar together and just see what happened, <laughs> because what he's suggesting in his recent writing is that the imagination is an evolutionary emergent, and not not that it's merely contained within the brain, but that soul or heaven or whatever we want to talk about, the transcendent realm that you talk about in reclaiming art you know the place where the archetypes live and express yeah. themselves into and through us that 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 space is actually like in a you know kind of Teilhard de Chardin way emergent out of the biosphere and that each layer of evolutionary emergence has greater longevity mm -hmm. like it's able to pass information down with greater fidelity so you know, he talks about the body as 
as a pattern of information through which matter flows and the soul as a pattern through which bodies flow. And, And he basically says, you know, that he feels that to have a soul is to be, you know, is something that is earned. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I think that there's something to that. And it seems like even though it's not really key to, you know, the entertainment quotient of stranger things, I do feel like the second season does suggest that somewhat that you have the way that you're able to see a distinction that, you know, what makes D'Artagnan an individual rather than, you know, one of the faceless horde of monsters is the fact that he has this relational history. Right. An I-thou kind of relationship instead of just a, you know, just a specimen among specimens. All that's really interesting. There's, you know, James Hillman, the psychologist, writes a lot, who wrote a lot while he lived about soul making or how soul is earned. And he he got that from Carl Jung. Carl Jung was big on... um, Basically, to be ensouled isn't a given in Jungian psychology. You kind of have to build a soul. And one of the things that I found interesting is that Jung says at one point that one of the, the, the best ways of starting to build your, a, a soul, a relationship with the unconscious that's unique and singular, is to have a dark secret. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he had this dark secret from when he was a child. His dark secret was, it was ridiculous. It was like he dreamt that God took a dump on a church. He had this dream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that happens all the time. Yeah, well, yeah, in Switzerland for sure. <laughs> um, so he had this dream, and he couldn't obviously couldn't. He was in a very religious household, couldn't talk about this, and he kind of. I think that's the secret. There might be something else that he hid somewhere, but there was a bunch of stuff when he was a kid that he knew he couldn't share, and those things he th- thought he couldn't share were uh, they established the perimeter or the border between himself and the world. And I think soul has a lot to do with being a self, right? Becoming a thing that's separate from the process, the collective processes that kind of flow around us and shape us in some ways is to have a soul is to kind of step outside of that. And I found I found that theme very because, you know, what's a replicant? A replicant is a human made by a corporation to serve as part of an institutional process, right? It's just there to serve the corporation, to colonize, whatever, a human being is someone who doesn't fully identify with their institution. And this is this is a problem that I see in other areas today. Like, it seems to me like there's an, especially on the left, there's this tendency to fully identify with the collective or the institution to the point where individuality is basically seen as a bourgeois conceit. But what, what do you lose? Seriously, like, yeah. where, where are we going if we go all the way down that road? Where we end up in a collectivist, soulless, like quite literally soulless uh Place. But, but I'm changing. I mean, the, the goalposts are shifting because soul means different things. We were talking about soul as as connecting to the imaginal. And now we're talking about soul as individuality. I think they're all interrelated. And it, unpacking that is, is a big job. But nobody's. it seems like nobody's doing that job. So maybe we should do well, it a little bit. Yeah, let's do that job. Because, I mean, I, I don't know that I actually recognize that much of a distinction between those two things. I think that the two, that individuation and the imaginal seem intimately related to me insofar as when we get into this issue of free order or free information or like where does order come from in the evolutionary process you know and and we can regard the the psychological or psychic evolution of individuals i think in as a sort of a subharmonic or like a harmonic or a fractal of species or or planet scale evolution and if you have a problem with that then i hope you will just indulge me for the rest of this podcast because because yeah i mean you know multi-level selection is already pretty orthodox in evolutionary biology and so we do tend to look at the individual and the population and the species and the ecosystem all together as inextricable from one another and in that sense i think that investigation starts to answer some of these questions about how order comes from or like how like higher states of organization come from lower states of organization so individuation is in some sense like a borrowing i think of order from the imaginal that it's like jean piaget the developmental psychologist talks about how if someone is moving 
out of identification with and total dependence on their primary caregivers, they tend to like, they get like a safety animal, like a teddy bear or a blankie or whatever. And that's a transitional structure. That's a bridge for them to internalize caregiving. So like the child can understand that when I need care, I can reach out for this thing. And then that care becomes part of an internal process. And then eventually that child has modeled all of that internally and is now, I mean, it seems like it's not that new information has occurred or new order has emerged so much as it's been redistributed from the environment into the individual. So it seems as though the process of individuation is like a gathering or a consolidation of environmental complexity into the mind, the imagination of the individual and their ability to model and navigate you know, an environment that is always more complex. And so, you know, it's always deepening in the way that the plots of these shows are deepening. Man, I think I lost a whole bunch of what you just said. Oh, I disconnected. No. Um, well, yeah. But so that, I, like a redistribution of information and order from the environment into the individual. And so that the process of making a soul is actually like drawing information and inspiration out of the imaginal, I think. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I like it. There's definitely an, an emergent quality to the process of, by which a soul arises. I, I agree with that. At the same time, there's the other idea, which is the idea that souls are precisely what, and this is another definition of soul, the soul is what does not evolve, does not change. It's the absolute singularity of what an individual is, whether an individual, you know, an individual, we'll say a person, because usually it's restricted to people, but I... So that, you know, Tertullian, do you know Tertullian? He was one of the church fathers. No, no. He's an interesting dude. He was a cantankerous, really, like a real grouch in the Roman Empire. He he hated philosophers. He hated the Gnostics. He hated everybody. And he wrote a lot against all these different factions, intellectual factions in the late antiquity, kind of just shooting them all down so that only this kind of, you know, the the church of the apostles would serve. He was kind of like a like a Bible Belt preacher, but in the late Roman Empire. But he wrote some interesting things about the idea of brute causality. So basically, the the way a thing can just come into existence without a cause, Mm. without being part of a process of evolution or any type of causal process, the way things can just appear. And uh, he said that each human being is is an absolutely new creation, totally different from anything that came before, irreducible to anything else that exists, so I've been I, I have a hard time processing that concept, but I've been thinking about it as um, what I would argue is the digital part of this analog digital equation, the part that has to do with the appearance of the new in its most singular form. Does that make any sense? It does. It seems like that digital though says is maybe in a way more about the threshold of awareness. It's like a per- I, I see that as a perceptual thing, and maybe that's. Yeah, that's like uh, naive for me or something. But like we notice something or we don't. And there's no there's no half noticing. I don't. Yeah. You know, And, and so in that sense, the sense in which something comes into being fully formed like that uh, when we see the, the replicant birth in 2049 from the pouch in the ceiling, it's like, well, that didn't just spring forth like fully formed like Athena from Zeus's brow. And in fact, I think it was Seth Godin, the the marketing guy in his newsletter recently, you know, he said that he's like, even Athena was probably in there reiterating and, and that Athena had some sort of embryogenesis, you know, some sort of process before she emerged in what seems like, like gastric breeding frogs, you know, where they keep the tadpoles in their gullet and then, the, the little baby frogs emerge fully formed out of the mother's mouth. But that whole process of evolution and, and development was, it, it wasn't just foregone. It was just hidden. Yeah. So I don't know. I, that's that's that, kind of how I thought about it, but I'm, I'm open to being otherwise. Well, no, it's a, that's you're, you've put your finger right on it. That's, but that's the question that's been really central to my thing for the last couple of years. The idea is that, Something happens, an event occurs, and then you assume that there is some kind of um, embryogenesis or some kind of causal process that brought about the event. 
And this is because we just assume that uh, we assume a principle that philosophers use, which is the principle of sufficient reason, which means that anything that happens has a reason why it happens. So any, anything at all will have some kind of basis in, in reason. But there's um, I might have brought this guy up last year when we spoke. Quentin Mayasu, did I bring up this French I philosopher? I don't remember. Okay, so he, he's a really interesting guy. And what he's basically attempted to prove is that the principle of sufficient reason is an untenable principle. There's nothing about, on a purely logical level, there's nothing about it that would uh, warrant us calling it a an axiomatic kind of principle that needs to be assumed. Like, there's no reason why something can't happen for any, or no reason at all. <laughs> and what he says is basically saying this, the only way you can prove the principle of sufficient reason, the idea that things happen because of causes, because of reasons, the only way you can prove it is by presupposing the principle. So you can never demonstrate the principle. You can only see it in action, but you can never know whether it's just the way things have gone so far, the way things appear to, to be, or whether there's some kind of legal basis or some kind of like metaphysical basis for things happening in a causal way. So it's very abstract, but the implications for me when I when I when I when I got it was were huge. It was like an explosion because it undoes the intellect, um, the philosophical intellect's pretension to knowing the real as such. There's there's like all of a sudden it's like it, was, it, all, it all comes from David Hume, right? David Hume said, "Well, we see the sun rise and set, but we can never know whether it'll rise again because it, we all we can do is observe sequential." events damn we can david never hume. right what's that i said damn it david hume as if yeah. my life isn't insecure enough already now i gotta yeah. well, well you should read me as because there's one part where he basically posits that the world didn't emerge out of some kind of the laws of physics emerged suddenly with no reason at all out of what mayasu calls hyper chaos and this hyper chaos is basically a form of time that is without any reason it's an absolute mad time that can create forms that are complex or simple as it wishes anything can come out of it at any point in fact the universe might have just come about 10 seconds ago with this level of complexity for no reason and might disappear in another 10 seconds for no reason at all so basically if you just remove the psr the principle of sufficient reason from your way of thinking about the world the world becomes very very scary and weird um <laughs> you know <laughs> So that's where you're getting into like absolutes versus relative truths, right? Like where on one yep. level we have that absolute basis of insecurity, but on another level we cannot navigate our daily lives that way. Like it just doesn't, right. how are you going to go around? Like, you know, cause I had that question with people before and I think that this, there might be a way to tie this back around to the issue of soul growing. But like <laughs> I thought about, you know, when people say live like every day is your last to me, that sounds like a really bad idea because the way that people tend to evaluate cost and, and benefit is by, you know, considering a, a kind of like internally modeled game theory where you play it out over time and you say, well, if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to steal from this person, if I'm going to hurt this person, then eventually it could come back around on me. Or, you know, even if you're a sociopath and you're not worried about that, you're still probably worried about consequences and you have to think about how you're going to get away with it whereas yeah. like I, I almost feel like asking someone to live as though every day were their last is sort of encouraging the worst from them whereas if you were to say like live the contrary i, I think would be like live as though you're already dead you know yeah. and in that sense it's like well then you you really sit with that unknowing of like well how yeah. long do i have here what's next and it invites an investigation that mm -hmm. I don't think you manage to encourage in any way with this notion that we might all die tomorrow. Like on one hand, I get it. Like we shouldn't scab over with the routine and the, the hab habitual, you know, but I think there's, there's got to be better ways to encourage the appreciation that we have traditionally sourced from a deepening sense of our mortality by looking at it because you know that you will die one day yeah. still gives you, you know, people, it's amazing how many people I, I run into on social media platforms that are capable of these extraordinary acts of 
compassionlessness by saying, well, you know, only now exists, you know, yeah. like your suffering isn't real. And it seems like that, that kind of negation doesn't really serve. So, I mean, I don't know. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. The, a principle of sufficient, re- it's sufficient, right? But it's, it's provisional also, right? Right, exactly. The place I've come to through all this is just, for me, it's just, I've ju- I'm just using it to back up the idea that, um, or to kind of support the notion that reality is fundamentally weird. So this to me is something that has pragmatic value as, a, as an idea. Um, it's not just something, an abstraction you carry around with you. So the, the principle of sufficient reason has to come into that picture for it to have any type of ethical or pragmatic value for me. Um, I mean, the absence thereof, the absence of the principle of sufficient reason. But the way this works into soul making, I mean, it's just that there are two poles to the idea of soul. And I think they're both the idea that, that everybody is, every individual is singular. That could be one notion of soul. And that works. And there's something about you that's not just reducible to the causes that produced you. So that to me is a, a useful notion. It's an old, it's a Christian, Jew, Judeo-Christian notion, right? And then there's the other idea that your uh, relationship with yourself isn't given, that you have to discover your soul. You, you have to make it. You have to make an image of your soul. So that's the engagement with the imaginal and everything. But something, there is like, I'm not super taken by the idea that we're just basically the product of random blind forces and then we kind of uh, coalesce into what is essentially just a, a random string of numbers that's unique. Like to me, there's... <laughs> There seems to be like something that's absolutely new in a person and in, in maybe in anything, really. And, and this is kind of what I'm working on for the, the book I'm writing. Um, but uh, so so there's those two, two those two things at once. So I do think that this all works with the, the soul business. Um, what you were saying about living for today, I never understood that saying, you know, like live as if this day is your last. I, I, I don't know. If, if I knew this day was my last, I would be completely paralyzed. I would have no idea what, what to do with myself. Like, <laughs> do I do I seek out pleasure? And like, that seems to be the kind of stupid assumption. That, yeah. <laughs> oh, just yeah, just go get drunk, dude. Like, Punch it's your crap. last day. Like, like, you know, if this day was my last, I'd basically want to spend it with my daughters, obviously, since I would never see them again. And uh, my wife and uh, I would just want to hang out and play board games, probably. Um, and so should I just do that? Should I just do that with my family now and just let, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Plus, we don't know what happens after death. Like, we don't know. I, I, that sounds na- incredibly naive. But in a way, like, I'm not implying that I believe in any of the traditional ideas, although I'm maybe I do. I don't know. Um, but we don't know what death means. So it's hard to know what it means to live your last day in that context. But the idea to live as if you're already dead, that to me has a lot of resonance because it means that you live your life in such a way that you, the story of your life has been written somewhere. For me, it resembles uh, Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return. It's that every action you take should be something that you would will yourself doing for the rest of time for eternity that you would do over and over again eternally so that everything resonates at the most at the deepest level so that every move you make is perfectly in keeping with the unique story that is your your soul right your your history in this world your kind of engagement with this reality mm. so does that do you think that that speaks more to you uh because of your work in film and and this sort of you know like alan watts talks about standing outside of your life and admiring it from the perspective of eternity as a symphony that cannot be understood by dissecting its individual movements. And it seems like that there's something about that, that, uh, yeah. Comfort or familiarity with narrativizing something and saying, no, no, this will eventually make sense from, some, you know, like in my holographic life review on the, you know, or whatever. I mean, do you, do you see that as yeah. sort of intimate with your work? Or? Um, in a way, yes. Like, I don't think narrative means that things are, that events are somehow morally justified, ultimately. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I'm writing a piece right now on Thomas Ligotti. Do you know him? No. He's a, a horror writer. He writes horror stories. He's 
he's one of the, I think one of the top 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 three or four writers writing in English today. He's absolutely phenomenal. Do you remember a True Detective? I could not bring okay. myself to watch it. Okay, I couldn't do um, it. There's one character who's kind of like the, the, the writer of True Detective, kind of almost kind of plagiarized or you know really borrowed heavily from Ligotti's philosophical work to um, write his, this one character's monologues about the meaninglessness of existence and everything. So anyways, Ligotti writes stories that, that, that basically are, are designed in such a way that you cannot possibly find any meaning in life from them. You know, you just can't. He's a nihilist. And the stories mm. are, in one sense, nihilistic. In another sense, they're not. And that's what I'm trying to show in this essay I'm writing, is that ultimately they're affirmative pieces, I think, because they're good works of art. And works of art, as I argued by definition affirm life in the world so it doesn't matter what they say they could be dark it doesn't matter there's something affirmative about them and i think that's the case with Ligotti. but the point is that so yes i think that my work as a writer and a filmmaker and a dungeon master had all these things <laughs> like um uh, of the role-playing type not the snm type there i don't know if, yeah no judgment um, okay <laughs> so i think that my narrative my work is a narrative kind of um craftsman uh, what i could say i guess has a big part to do with it but i think that stories are kind of almost archetypally kind of just like at the very bottom of the human the human thing the human uh, organism i think storytelling is goes really really deep i think that that notion gets uh simplified oversimplified and uh becomes a bit of a facile notion when you see narrative as fable or as allegory then it's like oh yeah there's a story there's a reason why this happens that's not really the way that stories work. Good stories, they don't really work in such a way that everything has its place morally in the universe. It's more like everything makes sense at an aesthetic level. Like so if things fit together aesthetically somehow through some weird synchronicity. And I think that it's possible to look at life that way and to experience life that way. That actually really, you know, to, to bring it back to Blade Runner 2049, I think that where that film really succeeded was in presenting a, a coherent poetry in that sense, you know, that they, it really did a good job of bringing it together in a way that leaves the most vital questions of the first film in place and deepens them. And it was such a relief for me, such a, such a, a welcomed change of pace after what I, you know, what I've been calling the Mr. DNA effect, which is this, this need in, in cinema to explain that which could be shown. Right. And, you know, to tell it. And of course you've got that, you know, that franchise also has its own historical relationship to the original theatrical voiceover that they removed in the director's cut of the mm -hmm. first Blade Runner. And so I really felt like that it honors the audience by not spelling it out for you because like yeah. you said like you said in your book you know as soon as you do spell it out for somebody then its potential to as a as a gateway to transcendence collapses into a you know a kind of a a, a, a pornographic or a proselytizing right. you know it's 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 propaganda and or didacticism or yeah, yeah exactly it's 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 um you know the best way i've thought of like I think I can explain it or at least try to explain it is that the minute the judgment of the author is withheld from the field of the judged. <laughs> That's like the worst way of putting it. But <laughs> it's very philosophical. The work, the work turns into artifice. What I mean is this. If I write a story and I want a particular opinion to prevail and I set up the story in such a way as to support that opinion, for example, um, I don't know, um, hobbits are um let's say no <laughs> um I, I can't think of anything but the point is you pick you know you, you write a story and you you set it up in such a way as to support an opinion or a judgment well then you've you've compromised not just you know the kind of through line or theme of your story you've compromised the entire thing because you haven't let the aesthetic take control of your art world and um that to me is the point where art turns into artifice and uh it's it's like it's hard to find art you find a lot of artifice like and then you find a lot of stuff that's in between that has a little bit like for example like stranger things 2 is very very kind of moralistic or kind of pat from a moral but what it does is it 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 relativizes the moralism of the story in such a way that it becomes interesting to me 
right so it's it, it's like it's not like uh, the latest hollywood film that just basically like tells you what to think and tells you how to feel it, it invites you into you know maybe maybe i'm just being a little bit unfair to other films and a little you know favor playing favorites with stranger <laughs> things i certainly think that blade runner is a real movie in the sense that even the plot points aren't given out aren't spoon-fed to you you have to put it together for yourself and to me that's just a natural choice as an entertainer even if you're just if your goal isn't isn't if your goal is just to entertain that seems to me like the best path because that's the way you invite people into your film hmm. it's just that you need people with a brain and um, those are super uncommon today. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, are willing I, to use their brain, I should say. Yeah. Well, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious in light of that, because I feel like a lot of films now and uh, Nerdwriter on YouTube has has talked about this. I forget exactly. Yeah. You know, but he, he says, you know, he looks at Logan and, you know, the new Marvel films in general and like this this wave of, uh, you know, he looks at the new Batman movies. He looks at... You know, all of these different pieces of contemporary cinema that call back to earlier cinema because the genre has become self-aware in some sense. Yeah. And so Stranger Things is a great example of that. But, you know, his, his case is that, you know, you get to a point with it where you have to make the choice to either deliberately reinforce the trappings of that genre and, you know, and pretend that you have the sort of naivete about it that you once did or to, you know, remark upon it critically or perhaps even cynically, you know, that there's, there's a sort of ironic aesthetic that emerges in the postmodern that is all about the inside joke, you know, like the hipster, like, Oh, I know about this kind of thing. So I'm curious, you know, well, no, no good can come of that. Right. So, so like clearly I think you and I are in agreement that Blade Runner 2049 it manages to step into it in a way that somehow like walks the tightrope and maintains its authenticity. Um, yeah. And then Stranger Things does it in a way that renders its, like you said, renders its moralistic message kind of quaint, you know, and sort of allows, right. allows the audience to either accept it or regard it with, you know, a kind of a hipster amused detachment. But then you got stuff like Jurassic World, you know, and it's like here you have a film that is doing exactly what Stranger Things is doing to a point. It's recycling itself in a way that it creates a sort of film within a film by making its own monstrous appropriation of the first film, the plot of its own, like its own plot with the the uh, monster genetic hybrid indominus rex like this dinosaur that didn't actually exist so i mean are you willing to give a, a film like that the same benefit of a doubt or like if, no. if not like why to not? me they're like you can't even compl- like stranger things is okay let's say i would compare like jurassic world to uh one of those like old west road shows and like the 1910s you know that traveled around and recreated the battles of the old west in the Ooh. most in the kitschiest most uh, facile way possible and Stranger Things is closer to kind of a, a pre-Raphaelite painting to me. It's more like because it's so it's so hyper aware of what it's doing, and it's so at the same time it's not ironic. That's the thing about Stranger Things. I don't see it. I don't see any irony in that show. It really is nostalgic. It, it really is pining for that time, that lost time. So that becomes an important part of the work because. It makes you realize, and that's what prompted me to write the first piece uh, last year, about the first season, I mean. It gets you thinking about certain things that are not anymore, that were once. At least for me, who grew up, you know, at that time. And I mean, all this is very personal. I, mm. I think it resonates widely, though. I think a lot of people felt this way. Whereas um, Jurassic World, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't even know, like... It's just, and it's include all those superhero movies. I mean, to me, it's just, I don't even know how to begin talking about stuff like that, you know? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know what to say about films like that. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it seems like it's, it's the shadow form of this thing yeah. that you and I both admire, which is that, you know, and which is, you know, handled really well 
in its own way, um, implicitly, like stylistically by Stranger Things and explicitly in, in the, the philosophical explorations of Blade Runner 2049, that we're at a point now where, you know, like in 2049, we're turning back to look upon the human, upon the biological, upon the reproductive mysteries, and we're you know to attempt to to reproduce them but it's like we fail to understand them we've become aliens sort of in our own bodies and it seems like you know when i when i reflect upon like the various possible futures listening to this show that you know the reason that these these films are all coming out good or bad and i you know i would group all the superhero movies in in this also in the in the sense that you know the superheroes like film critic john david ebert are you familiar with his his work yes i am yeah so like you know he makes the case that this is a, a revival of a lot of the you know the pre-modern heroes of of like babylonian mythology and so forth and it's like this is you know we are recasting the human as a work of art within this larger technological edifice and and so like we're no longer like we're we're taking a certain intentionality to our humanity that that shows up in like Donna Haraway's cyber feminist manifesto and in in like the uh, body hacking community in general mm-hmm. but i don't know it just it concerns me that like blade runner was a flop and jurassic world was the highest grossing film of all time and yeah. and that like what we have like that we kind of have to take this shit into consideration because <laughs> Otherwise, like I can see a sort of Vice magazine attitude towards our own humanity, like a, an ironic hipster detachment to having a body becoming right. this like thing. And then and then we really are at risk of losing the plot, you know, or losing our souls to yeah. use some kind of heavy handed language around it. You know, it just seems like, you know, yeah. if we if we indulge this attitude towards what we have transcended, then we're going to lose a lot more than we stand to gain. Yeah. But can you be more specific? Like if we indulge the... If with Jurassic World, there is a sense of it doesn't treat its subject matter with love. Right. The way that Blade Runner 2049 does. It doesn't... It's making like ironic hipster jokes about it like that shot early in the film with the the footprint of the bird you know and that you think it's a tyrannosaurus foot and it's a sparrow you know yeah. and then you get those they did that in lost world too they they turned in the the original jurassic park sequel they had that sequence of the series of cuts early in the film where someone is screaming and then it's like jeff goldblum yawning in front yeah. of a poster of an island that it turns right. out he's like in the subway that sort of ironic detachment seems to me to be a neurosis at the boundary between the modern and like a true mature deconstructed, but then reconstructed postmodern sense. And yeah. like, you know, without having to like get into the like language of post modernity and all that, but like this notion that we are now aware of ourselves, like my friend, uh, Rachel Nagelberg just wrote a book about a fiction novel about, uh, surveillance And the way that we understand ourselves differently from this out of body perspective of like cameras and data, data exhaust. And she calls it the fifth wall, like the way that the line between the conceit and the suspended disbelief of the play and then, you know, the audience, the reality of the audience is broken by the breaking the fourth wall that we're breaking the fifth wall between the suspended disbelief of our own sort of ego and our own self as an individuated author and right and that we're we're stepping outside of it in a weird sort of like techno buddhist way you know eric davis has wrote about this somewhat like the relationship between cybernetics and buddhism and in technosis Mm -hmm. that 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 you step outside of yourself and, and appear to yourself as a robot and so there's a way in which it, like the the stroke in 2049 of making K explicitly a replicant from the very beginning of the film actually 
humanizes him. It, it makes him almost more of a human character than Rick Deckard in a weird yeah. way, because, because now you've got this intentional embrace of it, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm ranting. No, you're not. I mean, it's just that, um, this ironic detached way we have, um, it's funny cause we took two nostalgic uh, works, right? Stranger things and blade runner, but we're trying to find out how they're different from other sequels or reboots. They're not the same. And I think the, the, the answer, the, the reason why they're not the same, uh, for me anyways, is that they are done, as you said, with love. And there's nothing more like that. I did, I made it with love. It doesn't, that phrase doesn't kind of like sound off too much in the, the ethosphere right now, like in this detached, uh, uh, ironic, postmodern, um, self-aware, uh, kind of pathetically kowtowing to some party line mentality that we're, we're in. Like everybody's trying to sound to be part of a group. Like, and that to me goes to the heart of this whole thing. Like if you're going to love something, it has to be genuine, right? <laughs> you can't just... You can't just love doing something on order. You, if something comes out of your uh, out of love, it needs to be something that comes out of your soul, out of who you are, how, and out of like it has to be something that nobody else but you could make in a way. There's just something about it that's uh, that's unique that way. And um, it seems to me like that go that just flies in the face, or just really goes against uh, the way of thinking that produces stuff like Jurassic World, or for that matter. You know, a lot of the academic literature that's coming out in the universities right now, where uh, there's just everything is is geared towards the outside, like how something comes off, how it will be received by this or that group, how this demographic functions, how can I make this for that, you know? And when you live that way, after a while, you start to lose touch. You, you, you basically have nothing left inside. There's that risk that you you do not know who you are anymore. And in Blade Runner, you have the story of a guy who's acquiring an inner world by finding a connection between his inner world and the outer world through the story. So it's like he gets a soul through the story because he confirms that the memories, well, you know, it's a long story. But the point is that there's this uh, this soul-making process by which he differentiates himself from the institution he lives. He, and he, it's very explicit in the narrative. He goes from having being K, but, which is basically the first letter of his of his serial number, K9, whatever, and then eventually becomes Joe. And when he becomes Joe, he becomes a person. It's, he becomes a real boy in, in the Pinocchio sense. Mm. So that's interesting. And that's a huge problem today. And I think it's a problem that's exacerbated by technology. I don't think technology is helping a lot of people make a soul, you know. You might differ. There. Well, no, I, I'm I'm fully with you, and I, you know, on that note, I think it's really interesting that the Terminator-esque henchwoman replicant of Neander Wallace in 2049 is named Love, but when I looked it up in the, you know, in the credits and the writing of the film, it's L U V, like I love you. <laughs> you know, like it's not it's not real love. It's like yeah. weird kind of pseudo detached uh jokey ironic love and then i find that that character really interesting because she commits these atrocious acts in the film and cries while she's doing it Mm -hmm. and i don't know if i'm right about this but it almost feels as though it's indicating that there is in fact a a sort of gap between the intention of making this automaton that is, you know, a human, like you said, totally in the service of its institution, you know, totally programmable. And the fact that there is, you know, like, um, there are like neurological disorders where you are horrified by what you're doing and you can't control yourself and you keep doing it anyway, you know? And it, it, it almost seems as though like, you know, what they're saying by showing her shed tears while she's murdering these other characters is that she's a, a on one level yeah she's a rem, like a remorseless death machine but that there may actually still be a seed of humanity you know a kernel of soul in there right. that is struggling to get out yeah i think she's a she's kind of the shadow version of a character that's very popular in films since the 90s the first instance of this particular character that I can think of is Silence of the Lambs. It's Jodie Foster's character. So this is a female lead 
um, often referred to as a strong female lead in films. <laughs> and uh, she, she's usually a woman. And she was in Denis Villeneuve's last movie, Arrival, right? Um, not Jodie Foster, but uh, who was it? Um, oh, this is so awful. Hold on. I'm going to IMDb this right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But keep going. Yeah, so this is a, a female uh, protagonist who is very, very good at her job. Amy um, Adams. There we go. Amy Adams. No, wait, Amy wait, wait. Adams. File under Adams. Yeah. Okay. Right. So the character is, uh, yeah, female uh, protagonist, very, very talented, intelligent, um, either has lost her kids or never had kids or, you know, some, something has basically made motherhood out of bounds for her or she's decided there's no the traditional female role isn't something that this particular character embraces at all. And instead, she fully identifies with the institution she works for. And she's usually in the course of the story betrayed by that institution. And usually at the end of the story, there's a reconnection with this traditional maternal thing, right? Mm. So it's all and ultimately a kind of conservative narrative form that you'll see in Silence of the Lambs. Not Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs keeps it till the end. She's just a broken person at the end. But uh, in, um, in Arrival, she ends up having a child. And, you know, it's all kind of mangled at the end, time-wise and all that. But Dana Scully in the X-Files. Dana Scully in the X-Files. I mean, we can think of this is, a, this is a, the same character comes up again and again. And, um, and I think that the love character from Blade Runner is kind of that, the shadow side of that archetype. Where she's living the struggle, the same struggle these other characters are living, but we're just seeing her from the other side. And there's something about this is obviously it's very tricky to to these days to talk about uh, motherhood and femininity and the you know how all these things like it seems like everything's being kind of reviewed under review right now and we can't really <laughs> say anything about this stuff. Yeah, but there is the humanity fact is you, on probation right now. Yeah, yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah, exactly. All our concepts are under audit, and. Um, <laughs> Like, so I have nothing more to say about that particular archetypal form, except to notice that there's something going on there. And it goes back again to this, this choice one makes whether to identify with the collective, with the institution, or whether one uh, develops a sense of self that enables one to take uh, action on the basis of some form of moral good, you know, on their own terms. And, uh, and just to throw in something else into the stew, um, the Coen Brothers films are very much about that. They're about characters who fail to live up to themselves. They're very moral films, but they're not moralistic. That's another story. Mm. So uh, when are we going to get this next book from you, man? I don't know. I have to finish this Ligotti thing, and I'm doing this podcast, and I'm finishing a show that's been keeping me busy for a while I don't know, man. I, I, I'm, I'm finding it hard to find the time to write it. But hopefully in the spring I'll have a draft. And then uh, we'll see what happens then. Cool. But, you know, in the meantime, since we last spoke, my, my uh, Reclaiming Art was translated into Spanish and has done really well in the Spanish world. Like, they really get it, which <laughs> I appreciate. So things are still kind of chugging along. And, I'm, you know, I'm trying to juggle the two, you know, the, the film stuff and then the writing and trying to find some kind of happy medium. It's hard, but um, yeah, eventually I'll have a new book. Awesome. <laughs> you? How's your book coming along? Slowly. Yeah. I find that, I find that uh, for me, writing is like 90% relationship conversations and 10% writing. Okay. <laughs> it's like there's this, this weird way in which I have taken on a project that's kind of too big for me. And that I need to rise to the occasion and that, you know, a lot of this has been internal and thus invisible work. And all my friends are like, how's that book coming? And I'm like, you have no idea the Sisyphean effort required for me to like, <laughs> but of course I think, you know, that's just, that's just being a first time parent. Right. As, as I actually, um, you know, Doug Riel of uh, North yeah. Atlantic. Yeah, he, yeah. he formerly of North Atlantic. I've been working with him to help gain some clarity and structure around it and and recently popped out a uh, a an extensive like four times too long outline uh for the entire thing and now it's just a matter of like chewing into the the various subheadings. Wow. But I got I got stuck this year on I really had a clear idea that the next thing I wanted to write was on play. And domestication yeah. and the, the critical learning period and how we've domesticated ourselves and 
and all of that. And this is actually, this is a great place. This is a great topic on which to end this call because this ties back into everything else. Have you read James P. Carse's Finite and Infinite Games? No, I haven't. Oh my God, dude. It's right up your alley, this book. He gets into, uh, let me read you just a couple of these dyads off the back cover so you have an idea. Sure. Um, A finite game is played for the purpose of winning. An infinite game is played for the purpose of continuing the play. The rules of a finite game may not change. The rules of an infinite game must change. Finite players are serious. Infinite players are playful. And so like it's in, you know, he talks about how society is a subset of culture that pretends not to be culture. It pretends to be insofar as it pretends not to be a, a creative act, an act of poiesis. Mm-hmm. It pretends to be the way things are. And so it, it, it takes itself yeah. too seriously and therefore emphasizes the past and the maintenance of a narrative, of a tradition, whereas culture is is often more forward-looking and playful and interested in playing with the rules rather than than within them. And so I feel like, you know, I got stuck. I got stuck this year taking myself too seriously to write the chapter on play and had to write a bunch of other shit around it. But now I've got to like circle back because ultimately I do think that that's sort of the end, the end game or like uh, maybe talking about it that way belies my lack of understanding, but that is a goal in individuation levity. And yeah. in, in recognizing that you can make these choices in the way that Joe decides to disobey his programming. Right. Yeah. As, as Nietzsche said, uh, may the earth become light, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, like there's something about the idea of, of this levity by which you're, you, you're basically living your life in a spirit of play. In this, and I like this idea of the infinite game. That actually touches on another my real obsession right now, which I mentioned, which is an obsession with the theory and idea of tabletop role playing games. <laughs> so I don't know how that's going to fit in anywhere, but I really think that when Gary Gygax wrote Dungeons and Dragons in the seventies, that he brought something absolutely new into the world, uh, and um, it 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 kind of. Like anything, you know, like Philip K. Dick said, when something new emerges, it first manifests in the trash stratum. (laughs) (laughs) So it started in this kind of, uh, you know, like uh, geek fringe world. But there's something about the idea that we can create works of art in time together in the storytelling. That to me is much more a revival of archetypal forces than, you know, watching superhero movies. And we could, this is a whole other topic, but the idea of the, this infinite, the spirit of play and the idea of the infinite game is something that I think is super important. And I'm looking forward to reading your chapter about mm. that. Also, the book you just mentioned. I'm going to pick it up. Likewise, dude. I'm, I look forward to everything you put out. Man, I really appreciate you being on the show again. It's been a blast. Thanks. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah. So we'll do it again eventually. <laughs> Sounds great, man. Have a good day. Okay. Yeah, bye bye. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the Mind Pod Network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome shows coming up on Future Fossils. So stick around. Thank you.